All right. We have a great study ahead of us to take a look here. So let us start by setting context. So last week we talked very briefly about what is context, and we came to uh, review one more time for the probably the millionth time for some of you, but for the new people, it's um, an important part of what we're going to be doing here as inductive Bible study students. Tell me what is context. Some of you, remember I told you last week that you were to read chapters one and two of your how-to study book, right? So did you all do that? Nobody's wanting to raise their hand. Is that because nobody wants to lie while you're in church? (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Okay. So tell me, what, what does this book tell us about what context is? What did you find? No, I'm no, I'm saying that you all don't want to lie in class, and therefore I'm just you know, I think it's yeah. Okay, well, Craig. Literally, I mean, with, what's with the text? Okay. But it's it's really the setting, and they use the example of a what's a trunk? Describe a trunk. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't know if you're talking about an elephant or a swim trunk or a tree or whatever. So unless you know the setting that it's in, you don't understand the meaning. Very good. Okay, so you have to understand the environment in which something is found in order to give it understanding, right? So in a book uh, of literary work, what are the things which are going to help you to set your context? What kind of things were you asked this week to look at? Well, those are the questions you're going to ask, but what are you asked to look for in order to identify your context? That's right. People, places, and events, right? Okay, so we're going to start right away this morning by looking at um, the major people of a literary piece of work. Who, what is the major? Who, who would you consider to be major if you're going to look at a piece of literary work like this? There you go. Paul, the author, and? Well, who are with him. That's right. And then what is the other major group that you're going to want to look at? The recipients. So it's obvious. It's the author and the recipients are what you're going to look at. So no matter what book you're in, whether it is Paul and Sylvanus and and Timothy or whether it's someone else, it's what's important is who is that author and who are the recipients. So let's start by identifying that author. And do you tell me where you found it? Who is our author again? Paul, and what verse tells you that? 1-1. One, one. And then K specifically took us to a, a verse that actually makes it super clear. Because although in 1-1 one, one it mentions Paul, but it also mentions who else? Sylvanus and Timothy. So with just that opening verse, although Paul's name comes first, which is a clue, right? But it doesn't specifically just say that only Paul wrote. And so how do we later come to see for sure that it actually is Paul? In 317. What does it say in 317? I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, this is very interesting. Is there anything that's said in this book that gives us a clue as to why he might conclude his writing in this manner? Are there other books where Paul says, you know, I wrote this with my own hand? Yeah. No. He does. He does. Yes, he does. He's talking about some people who's writing these things as they're happening. So, basically, I think at the end, he's probably saying, and this is how you're going to 
has he mentioned in any other place in this writing um, where you see or in an indication that maybe someone else had written something that had fooled them or potentially taken them astray? Yes. What, what did it say about it? What, what else has he said about who has written or what was written? Right, whether it be by letter or, or uh, spirit or, or a message from any other avenue. He says then, what, so now he concludes then saying, but this one, see here how I write. Now that's interesting too. What is he implying there about see here, how, this is how I write? Right, exactly. Um, it. It is almost okay. It's, it's something apparently about the way that he writes that is so distinguished. Okay, this is something that we've kind of concluded, right, through other kinds of studies. So what is some of your, I know you don't have to tell me where, but what is it that is uh, basically out there historically that gives us the understanding that there might be something distinguished about the way that he writes? possibly has eye problems because he's, he does talk about eye issues in other books at other times. And so if you have eye issues, Marion, yes. what, uh, what cha- happens with your handwriting? It gets large. It gets large. <laughs> okay, so here we have a perfect example of someone who fully understands that. All of a sudden, large letters and a, it becomes a very distinctive way of writing. So this is a marker. So in this book, apparently, it was significantly important for Paul to clarify to them, this is me that's writing at this time. You can be assured that this letter has come from me and not from someone else. Now, in here, because of the fact that he said, don't be deceived, as if, even if you receive a message or a word or, or if some other kind of avenue, that it, a letter that might be from me, but then what does he say to them? that they're to remember so that they understand what has come from him and what has not come from him. What he has already taught them in the past. He's saying, you need to remember back about what I have already taught you so that you can not only look at my large handwriting, but also you can say, is what he's saying now the same as what he said before? And in doing that, lining those things up, you can say, yes, this is from Paul. Otherwise, if it's somebody who's trying to play the imposter, maybe, and trying to fool them into thinking it's from Paul, then he, can, he would say to them, but you need to also not only look at my large handwriting here, now identify this is from me, but also remember what I have, have taught you before. It kind of made me think about, I remember when, Jesus first rose from the dead. He's walking on the road to Emmaus, and he's speaking with uh, those disciples about who the Christ was supposed to be. And one of the things that he brings up in this conversation is basically, do you remember what you've been taught? And then he goes and he says, and he spoke to them all the things that were written from the words and from the prophets and uh, um, and from his own teachings, right? And so he makes that reference back to what they had already been taught by that individual, and therefore they should recall those things, and that should be also an identifying marker, correct? All right, so I thought that was really, it's just kind of subtle, but it definitely becomes very uh, clear when you see that. So we're going to look at the author. Now, who are the recipients of this? (laughs) 
I have to I have to know how to spell. And sometimes my brain is not doing this here. Okay, so it is the church. And we see that in one one. And it's the church from where? From Thessalonia. Or Thessaloniki, right? So we'll just put on there Thessalonica. And by the way, for those of you who might be interested, up here uh, I did bring um, my photo album again from my Greece trip. And there are pictures here of Thessaloniki today, modern day. Here is a tour book, a tour guide that I picked up when I was there that you can flip through and look just to see present-day Thessalonica. It's just interesting. It adds another dimension to your insight sometimes on these things. Did any of you do research on the city of Thessalonica at all to, to kind of set some more context a little bit? Okay, well, and if you didn't, I also have a sheet here that I pulled just one resource that gives you a little more insight and background about it. But sometimes that adds an additional flavor of insight and understanding to a book that you're doing. So I highly encourage those kinds of things. Um, I know that this week's homework was a lot, so if you didn't do it this week, it's understandable. But you may want to, I guess I should spell better. Let's fix that. <laughs> Doesn't need those two E's in there, did it? Okay. All right, so it's the church, and they're also identified as what? That's right, the brethren. And therefore, what we know then is they ha- are those who have what? Believers. Believers. Okay, um, what about the literary style? Did because yes, yeah, so as he gives that very clearly to us in this particular one that this is a letter, and so when you're looking at a letter, why is that a significant point to to make note of as far as setting context? Okay, if you're writing a letter to somebody and you're telling them the kinds of things that Paul is discussing in here, is he doing it in a, in a format or in a, in a phrasing in which uh, there should be any kind of confusion about what's being said? It is very literal, is it not? I mean, he's not going to record or write something that is not truthful or that's not directly a literal point. So everything that we look at, therefore, we interpret as literal, correct? Um, Is this a problem in our church today in any way? Yes. What do people tend to want to do with the Word of God when it comes to how they interpret things? Okay, they can read into things. And when I say they read into it, actually you said it, but when, you, when they read into it, um, why do you think they're doing that? I don't think they understand. Okay. Okay, palatable, the fact that they want it to be palatable indicates to me then that there's something in there that's being said that maybe is not palatable to them, correct? Um, Actually, um, I just had a conversation recently with a person that was on a different book of the Bible. It was a different literary style, but in that particular literary style, it's historical. It was a historical record. And also with history books, how do you interpret them? Literal. uh, So it's not imagery or or figurative, unless the author 
in the course of that recording makes a switch and indicates to you he's made a switch, you can be rest assured that what is written is to be literal, factual, and interpreted in that manner, right? So this particular conversation had to do with uh, the Genesis account. And what is a day? Okay, so in that flow of thought, when you consider that, that this is a person who looked at that and said, well, maybe a day is not a day, right? Because what have they done with that literary style of Genesis, which is history? They've taken it now and said, what of it? It's figurative. That's right. It's all figurative. And therefore, then they can take it and make it mean anything they want. Now, would you say that knowing your literary style and, and not violating your understanding of how to interpret a specific literary form, that that would be an important contextual point in order to then come to sound interpretation? I, I'm kind of stressing this point again this morning because I feel like the literary style really is significant. And if a person is not led to, because it, it actually ended up being, I think, a very good answer to this person's objections to a day is not a day, it, to be able to say to them, but yes, but this, this book that we're speaking of, in this case it was Genesis, is a history book. So my question back to them then would be, well, at what point in this book does it cease to be literary or to be figurative and it becomes historical? Are you saying then when, when it talks about Adam and Eve and the fall, when it talks about um, the flood, when it talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all these other figures in there, at what point along the way does it switch from being this imagery to being literal? That's exactly right. Anybody gets to choose. And so who gets to say at what point a book is, it, is falling in line with the literary style of which you have understood it to be? And, and so who gets to pick and choose when you switch on your interpretations of things? So because this book is so, such a simple book, and we're not going to have controversies like this probably in this book. It's going to be pretty straightforward. I just think sometimes talking about these principles of why do we want to know it's a letter. I mean, it can feel like, oh, we're just doing this for doing it, you know, and it's like, who cares? Move on, right? But there really is a profound reason for us to stop and ponder on this and to discuss it as inductive Bible study students because what I want you to understand is how this is a principal point of context setting that establishes everything else uh, uh, as far as from here forward, how you're going to interpret what we're going to be looking at. And it does not only apply to this book, but it applies to any book. So when you get move along in your, um, in your studies, whatever study you might be in, I know we have a, a visitor here this morning, which I didn't even identify. I'm so sorry. Susan, would you like to introduce your visitor with us? Yay, Shirley, thank you. And she's been here several times before. We're always so thankful to have her come and join us. But Shirley won't be with us long term, right? So she's going to drop in. When she goes home and she goes back to her Bible study, whatever it is, this is a point that she can carry with her and say, you know what? I'm in this study in Washington, and this is what I'm looking at. And as I'm having conversations with people about the things that we're looking at, I have to stop and say, what is the literary style in which we are working? And therefore, that once I identify that literary style, that 
sets a context for how I'm going to interpret what's being said in it. Okay, have I have I made a good enough point on that? We can move on. <laughs> I know. I, and for so many of you guys, you've heard this over and over. But for the sake of my new students, I really do want to make sure we hit on all of these points uh, as carefully as we can. Okay, so that's what literary style is. It is a letter. What, what kind of things are in this letter? Encouragement or exhortations. Lots of instructions. Do this and don't do that, right? And warnings, a lot of warnings. So these these instructions of how to do things, what to do, what not to do. So it's instruction and exhortation. So I'm just going to pick a no, make a note on that. Instruction and exhortation. Yes, and that's all in the instruction aspect of it. I want you to remember not only what I'm saying to you now, but also what I have told you previous to this, right? Can I ask a question? Uh-huh. Uh, he's writing, but, and just identifying Mark with something, and this is just, I think that somebody wrote something to them saying that it's from Paul. Possibly. Possibly. Um, or, or this is my, I think his right, his, the way that he writes was his distinguishing mark. That's exactly. Yeah. Well, potentially, yeah, for sure. And, and he absolutely starts saying uh, Paul and Savannah and Timothy he identifies himself at the beginning. And then he closes it saying, I, Paul, have written this with my own hand. And you can see that I've written it with my own hand because of my distinguishing mark. Now, I think that probably it's the way that he's writing. And we, and we, you have to kind of go back, like we said earlier, and, and consider what we know from other books, the little hints that are given to us in other books about the issues that he had. One, they think it was his eyesight. And Sometimes that's potentially correct, but yes. Okay, so letter, instructions, and warnings. Now, the next thing that you would need to do if you're going to go through this then would be to simply make a nice little list on your author so that you know who he is, a little bit about him. So let's do that. Let's go over here. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That others dictated it. Absolutely, Craig. In other words, he's saying, does it mean he wrote the whole thing himself with his own hand? No, it doesn't mean he wrote it, the whole thing with his whole hand. He could have opened it with his writing and closed it with his own writing. But, but what he is letting them know is what? The context, the content of the whole letter is from where? Is from Paul. Now, it kind of brings up another important point, and that is, why is that a significant point? Who is Paul in relationship to the church and to what we know about his place and, and work and part? Huh? So he's an apostle, that's right. And um, who was it that really called him into his 
work that he's doing, Jesus himself. For those of us who came out of having studied Acts, what do we know about his coming into faith in in Acts chapter 9? It was very dramatic. Uh, is it is it like you and I's entrance into faith in that? Oh, did you have a light from heaven come down and? Oh no, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Absolutely no. Okay, yes, yes. Okay, I just was checking to see if maybe you had something. I was going to come over and say, "Can I like touch you?" <laughs> right. Yes, that is my point. My point is, why is it important, you know, in this particular letter, how, why is it that he seems to bring it up? And, it, and in a lot of Paul's letters, it kind of looks like he's a braggart a little bit, doesn't it? I, Paul, I did this, I did that. And yet what he says in, I remember in Corinthians, he's saying, I, you know, I don't want to brag in myself. I only want to, you know, brag in the Lord. But Yet, sometimes he actually does go, well, I am this and I am that. So why does he do that? To establish his own authority. There you go. To give the credibility and the authority of, of, who he, of his calling, who Christ called him to be. I think that's really cool. If you stop and think about that and you try to make that application in your own life, and there is application for each of us, think of the fact that God also called you, right, right. differently. Obviously, we didn't have a light come from heaven, right? We didn't, the Lord didn't speak to us directly. And he, he was born and placed in history in a distinctive time. I loved that Acts chapter 17 where he says that all men, right, are placed by God in a certain time and place in history that they might find God and seek him, although he's not far from any one of us. Um, Paul understood that God had uniquely placed him in history and given him a commission. He had a unique um, entrance into the faith because the Lord actually appeared to him and spoke to him and on more than one occasion, right? In other places, we see Paul is actually visited by the Lord and taught by the Lord. He, he touts that a little bit to say that he's equal, he has a, an equal standing with the other apostles in that he was not taught by the other apostles. It's not a trickle-down thing for him. He learned directly from the Lord the things that he learned. And so in this, when Paul opens a letter and closes a letter indicating this is from him, this is also a... a um, a credentialing kind of a moment where he is letting them know, I have this authority. It came directly from the Lord, and I am speaking to you with that kind of authority. Um, would that be significant to you or I if we were at that time in history also? I mean, it still has authority to us, does it not? That Paul is the one who wrote these things, that Paul is an eyewitness of the Lord. He was particularly, he was not only an eyewitness, but an instrument in the birthing of the, of the church itself. And so this gives him some credentialing and some clout that, that gives us confidence to know the things that he is saying are truthful and are accurate, right? All right, so let's just list a few things that we did learn about Paul. Let's do a small list on the author. Pull out your notes that you did in your homework. Yes. That's right. 
That's right. So when you did your list on Paul, that's one of the qualities that you could. Now, there's two ways of doing a list, okay, on, on your author. The first one is what we call a literal, topical, simple list. You pull out your subject, you mark it. Did you go through and mark all your points to finding where where Paul was mentioned, correct, by marking him in a certain color or a certain way? And then you go back through, and everywhere you see Mark, Paul marked, then you attack it. And Carol and I were talking about this yesterday in church. You know, all those who, what, why, when, where, and how questions then are to be applied as you're going to make your list. Who was he? Where was he? Why was he there? Right? So the who, what, why, when, where. Um, and I do think Carol had a good point in that, you know, sometimes she felt, she said she felt, I hope you don't mind me sharing, Carol, <laughs> that she felt a little bit overwhelmed by all of those questions, that interrogation process. Um, and I just want to say to you that the interrogation process is not there to bind you in and, lo- and make you feel smothered by a rule of what you have to handle as far as doing your list making. But the point to giving you that tool of understanding is to help you know what to ask so that when you go in there, you do consider all these points. Who is he? Why is he there? What was he doing there? How did he get to that place? What was his, you know, his instructions to them? And if you don't use that little inductive uh, step, basically, to interrogate the scriptures, there are points that you might miss that are, can be significant. Um, sometimes you go through and you, you're asking all these questions and you're making your list and after a while you're thinking, this is more information than anybody needs to know, right? Or would ever remember. Okay, so that's what you call a, a, a straightforward, simple list. You find your subject, you mark your key word through, you go in, you interrogate who, what, why, when, where, how, you make your list, and don't forget to put your street address on there where you found your information about him, Right. Then the next step in that process, I think, is even more interesting and a little bit more fun for me, maybe. But we call it analytical. Once you have made your fact points directly from the text, then the next thing you can do is say, what did I learn about Paul? So I would like to do that with you this morning. You tell me some things from your list making that's very... uh, specific from text to paper, don't change the words, write what it says, don't add your thinking or your feelings about it. Now let's take it to the next level and say what, in that analytically, what did you observe then about Paul? What are some conclusions that you have come to about him? And if some of your points are directly from the text, that's still okay too. But we just want to build a nice list that tells us who this author is. Okay. Okay, he's with Timothy and Sylvanus. Now, yeah, so if you are a inductive student, and that's in 1-1, I'm going to give you your scripture reference. Make sure you give me your references so we can put that down. Um, uh, If you're going to do something inductively at this point then with this information and try to do some research on him, where would this maybe then take you? Probably to Acts. Probably to Acts. (laughs) That's right. All you'd have to do then would be to go to a a, a concordance in the back of your Bible and look up these other names. 
you could look up Sylvanus, you could look up Timothy and go to see if you can find anywhere in that in that concordance where these men link up with one another. And it would help you to, to then find out where you can find the information that shows you the history in the background on how they related to one another. How, what has their history together been, correct? At this point, he's with Sylvanus and Timothy. Well, how did that happen? Do, does somebody want to just give some insights about what they know about that? Uh, Martha. Mm-hmm. So, to, so one thing you do come to figure out is Silas and Sylvanus are the one and the same. That it's a name that's just got a different way of saying it. Oh, somebody's like going, oh, ding, 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 ding. So, what do we know about Paul and and uh, Silas? What happened to those two men together historically? Yes, they did. And what happened to those two guys? Where did they end up? Well, they did eventually have a boat to Rome, but before that, back in chapter 16, what happened to them? And a jailer. <laughs> Do you remember that? They ended up in prison together in, in Philippi, right? So they, they, go to, they uh, cast out a demon out of a, a woman who is a, a, a diviner. She'd been making profit for her owners, right? And, and he says, uh, Paul turns in annoyance and casts this particular demon out of the woman, which then leaves her what? Of no value to her owners. <laughs> and so they're very upset. So he, he and Silas end up in jail, right? And eventually what happens to the jailer? He, he, gets, he comes to know the Lord. So that gives you some... Inside about these two uh, two men, all right, and having gotten to that place then in the book of Acts, then you can also, if you continue reading, you can see more insight about how Timothy also comes into play in that, right? So it's a bit of a journey, and it can be a rabbit trail, and for those who are beginning to build um, a baseline of understanding scripturally, you know, that could take you some time. For those of us who just came out of that study, for us, it's just a, a very quick, uh, yes, I remember all that. You can just start pulling all kinds of things out of your head of where they were, what they did together, some, some of the other encounters that they had had already, the history they had had, and it actually begins to put it on a timeline for you, doesn't it? So we're going to do that this morning also. We're going to look at this timeline. We know that... Always with a timeline, you just want to start with some of the real obvious big chunky pieces that give you your boundaries, right? So we know that, that on a timeline, you're going to start with the cross. For us at this point, we're not doing Old Testament, we're new. So we're going to start with the cross. And, what, and we know then that when, having dropped back into Acts and connected Paul and Silas together, and uh, Timothy as well, um, we know that what's going on at this, in the writing of the book of Acts is what? What major event? That's right, the birthing of the church. So on your timeline, you'd probably want to give yourself a nice little church, right? Okay, so we have the birthing of the church. Um, let's go ahead and make a note under here that in Acts 16, we have Paul and Silas. 
at Philippi. Um, and they have been thrown into jail there, right? That was in Acts 16. Um, I'm just going to put 19 as to give you a specific place to drop into if you wanted to go and look at that. Um, and following that, then, where do they go? That's when they go to, that's exactly right. So in chapter 17, verses 1 to 9, what do we see occurring there is the birthing of the church at Thessalonica. Okay, so we're going to give ourselves another note on this timeline. Paul gives gospel at Thessalonica. Or Thessaloniki, however you want to say that. Does it, by the way, just for those who, d- who didn't just do this with us, where is Thessalonica at? What landmass is it located? Macedonia, which is Greece. Exactly. Just so that you know, you get your boundaries down. This is Greece. Okay. I can see you're squinting, Shirley. Is it hard to see? Did I give you the wrong name? <laughs> Next time we have to move you closer. I can't see from that distance either. So, <laughs> Okay. Acts 17, Paul, Paul births the church. Now, what happens right after that? Just, just by recall, somebody tell me what happens after he, when he goes to Thessalonica, he gives the gospel to those people there. And yes, the church is birthed and there are some who believe, but what else happens there? Do you? There becomes a very big uproar, doesn't there? I mean, it's not like a small matter. It's so severe, the intent, the persecution that rises up immediately against that church and against that message that he's bringing there is so severe that he is basically chased out of town. And he goes then to Berea, where we, we hear about the Bereans. Remember, they're more noble-minded than the Thessalonians were, meaning the unbelieving Thessalonians, right? That they were of more noble-mindedness because they at least listened to Paul and then went to the scriptures to see whether what he taught was true or not. Exactly. So we see him in 17.5 uh, that he's chased out. He goes to Berea, and then the next point is something that we looked at in our homework. We, Kay gave us a cross-reference into 1 Thessalonians to just give us another little insight. In, it's a piece of the puzzle that we did not have for ourselves when we did our Acts study. Go to 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 6, and somebody read that for me. It was in your homework this week, so... First Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. It was a cross-reference she gave us. Martha, would you like to read that for us? Yeah, one to six. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. 
Okay, so then you're going to go, now drop into Acts 18.5, which is the next place on this journey, 18.5. And what do we see there? Okay, so now we see who's with him? Silas and Timothy. Who's with him in our book in 2 Thessalonians? Silas and Timothy. So are you beginning to see how it all starts to fit together? So apparently, here's what happened is he went to Thessalonica. He, he is chased away to first to Berea, and then he goes to Athens. Okay? And when he's in Athens, apparently, from what First Thessalonians tells us, he is so concerned about those Thessalonian believers that he had left behind because of this, this huge mob that had basically welled up in this great persecution at that, to the point that they chased him out of town. And they didn't just chase him out of town. Do you guys remember what happened? When they got to Berea, what happened? Yeah, they left Thessalonia came to Berea to chase him down and to continue to persecute him in the next town and stir up more trouble for him. That's how angry the Thessalonians of that, the unbelieving Thessalonians were of that city. And so that is our context for who these believers are. It shows you that they, although this little tiny church has been birthed in this city, there are believers there. The whole city are not believers. There's a great deal around them who are very aggressive against their, their faith. Uh-huh. It was the Jews of, of um, Thessalonica that chased them down. Yes, that's what I'm... Just the, just that and some wicked men they found in the marketplace. <laughs> it, says, it says in there that um, when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of the Lord had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they came there as well, agitating Exactly. And I thought it was hysterically funny that they also found some wicked men in the market to go with them. I'm like, man, as if, I guess that was going to be their cover because they didn't want to, you know, they're so pious as Jews. They don't want to look like they are the evil doers, right? So they're going to bring some wicked men who are not affiliated with them, who they can give them marching orders and send them out as their, as their, basically their cloak, you know, of, oh, well, it's those guys that are causing all these problems. We are not doing that, right? Yeah, there you go. Exactly. So then while Paul is then, while Paul is at Athens, then he sends, Paul sends them back to check on them. So he sends Timothy to check on them. Okay, what does that tell us about Paul then? We know he's, we see the first thing about Paul is that he is with Timothy and Silas. Just by interpretation of the events that we just looked at, what, what kind of qualities do you see about Paul? He is, really has a shepherd's heart, doesn't, doesn't he? So he has a shepherd's heart specifically for these, for the Thessalonians, right? These Thessalonian believers, I'm going to put a cross on that just so you know that it's talking about the good guys there. Um, So he has a shepherd's heart. What else? 
What else have we learned about him? When you did your list from Acts, he's fearless, okay, and you get, draw that from what point? Okay, so what you're making a reference to is the fact that he has actually uh, enduring then uh, himself some persecutions. Although we know that having come out of Acts, that he endured a lot of persecutions. Where is it in the in the text of Second uh, Thessalonians that you see an indication that he has endured suffering himself? In one seven, exactly. He speaks to them about. Basically, he's encouraging them concerning the fact that they themselves are enduring these afflictions and persecutions, right? And then he says, uh, as a word of exhortation to them, that the Lord basically is going to come. There's going to be a time when God is going to put things right and that this and the coming of his kingdom. And he says, um, these sufferings, he said, not only to avenge you, but us also. Right? Because he basically he implies there that he himself has also suffered and endured uh, suffering. So let's put on that. He, he himself has endured suffering. Is that an itself, in and of itself, also an encouragement? Now, we have to be kind of told this and taught this. If we had not come out of Acts, we would need to go back and get this insight. But for these Thessalonians who know more of Paul's story than, than we uh, dropping into it would have, um, knowing that Paul himself has endured suffering, would that be an encouragement to you if you're enduring suffering? And tell me what you know about that. I just saw an, an interesting report on the news this morning. I was watching, um, uh, I like to listen to the news while I'm getting dressed. And, um, of course, I yell at the TV a lot. But, um, <laughs> but this morning they had a guy from uh, Duck Dynasty, he and his wife on there, and they have a child, a daughter, who had a cleft palate. And they were talking about this little girl's struggle and journey and all the surgeries and all the pain and all the heartache. And the subject of suffering in the life of a Christian came up and they began to talk about how they now call it a blessing. And apparently he's just written another book. It's called Blessed, Blessed, and Blessed. And he, and he said that third blessing, where he, he gives a bless for each of his children. And, and in between the first two blesses, blessed, blessed, dot, 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 blessed. He said because the dot, dot, dot is the time when he couldn't see it as a blessing at first. What was, what, how would you as a parent endure under and go through the kind of stress and difficulty and, you know, and knowing that life is created in the womb, God created you exactly as you are, knowing all those things and having a child born with this kind of devastating, okay, Cindy's going to tell us all about this because, um, it is a blessing when we have, my son was diagnosed And I just wouldn't, you know, I didn't want to believe it. I didn't, you know, it's like, I'm going to do whatever I can to help him. And he's doing amazing. He's been cleared of that diagnosis altogether. Um, But it was a blessing because God worked in his life and my life. 
and my families and everyone around just through that. So if you were writing a letter today to the church and you were commending them for enduring, then consider everyone in this room has a story. Everyone in this room has had suffering and trials and difficulties either personally with their own health or with their family members or with struggles with finances, struggles with marriage, struggles with whatever. As because we've all endured various kinds of maybe not specifically persecutions, but suffering, right? And then the question always comes up, why? Right? Why? So Paul is writing to say to these people about their suffering, the why, right? And so how is that valuable if you're going to receive a letter from Cindy who's gone through her specific thing, especially if you have a child that has the exact same diagnosis, how is her letter to you going to be beneficial? It isn't, why and why is it such an encouragement? If I wrote you that letter, would it be of same value? I don't have a child with that issue. Because she's been through it. Do you, can you guys begin to see then in our own lives, that, and we're just touching on this today because next week we're going to have a, a great deal of study on this. But when you consider the, the work of God in each individual life, you know, you, you almost ask the question, and a lot of people do ask the question, why is it that when you get saved, why doesn't God just wipe away all the problems? Okay, because suffering can help you to grow. And w- according, go ahead. says in the scripture, he says, you're suffering for the kingdom of God and aren't you worthy of the kingdom? There you go. Somehow in this process, we're going to develop this more fully next week. We're going to look at, at looking at the, the quality and the purpose and the function of suffering in our lives. And in this particular letter, it's one subject of persecution specifically. But we can broaden the the concept to just general suffering. Um, I don't think we as the church suffer as directly as they did at this time. But do you see it coming? We talked about this even when we did our Ezekiel study in particular, uh, the, the suffering that eventually is going to start to rise up, in our, and we're seeing it more and more in our world today, where Christians specifically are being targeted. We just had another school shooting, right? And Yes, go Yes, uh, and that was it. What did this young man ask of those he was about to shoot? Are you a Christian? Specifically, are you a Christian? And then he proceeded to shoot. So I would say that, you know, we can, we can take this, um, the insights that we are going to gain from what we're observing here, and we can say on it from two different perspectives, one specifically about Christian persecution, but we can also broaden it to just general suffering. And then what we need to do then is develop it and say to ourselves, then what is God showing me about suffering and persecutions and afflictions in my life? And, and I love the fact that Philippians really addresses it very clear. Who's done Philippians before? Anybody in here? So what does Philippians teach us about that? Yes, count it all joy, because in the end, God has a purpose in it. Did you see anything in this book at this point that kind of indicates just that Paul has an answer for them concerning suffering? Does he address that a little bit? Did you see that? We're going to develop it more carefully next week when we look at that. But 
Paul, of our author, he lets us know right away that he himself has endured suffering. There's a, uh, I think it's, let me look at it here. I made myself a note, I think. It's in 1 Corinthians, yeah, or 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11. Let's go there real quickly. 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 28. And it was not a cross-reference that we had in our, uh, in our homework, but it's one I think is concise. For those who did not come out of Acts, this is a place you can drop in and just kind of get it all in a big nutshell, okay? And let's take a look at that real quickly, just so that we fully develop this insight about him, because it does matter in the context of this particular writing. Okay, 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 28. Somebody want to read that for us? Well, it was through 28, so I don't know where you got. Is that close enough? Okay, good deal. All right, so what we see there with him, I think, is really cool. because he does just what I said. He really pulls both issues together. He says, yes, there's Christian persecution, but there's also just simply hardships, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people ask, why does God allow us to suffer, as you said? Mm-hmm. What we tend to forget is that God himself suffered. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I can't wait to develop this uh, more thoroughly next week because I do think it's one of the stumbling stones for so many people coming into faith. They don't, they don't really want to accept Christ because they feel that, um, first of all, you know, in Christianity, it should be a bed of roses and it's not. And they view God as mean or unloving because of suffering in the world. Rather than understanding where suffering came from and owning it as our own problem and that God has a solution for it, that he's paid a penalty and a price through his own suffering in order to redeem us back to that place where God wanted us to begin with, which was in this perfect fellowship with him in obedience to him right? Understanding that he wants good for us and therefore we are willing to be obedient to him. But the world has fallen and the world has got trials and difficulties. Carol. Right. 
Especially if you consider everyone goes through it, so why not me too? Who do I think that I am that I should be without suffering in my life? I mean, you think about the, your friends and your neighbors and your other family members, and they, they go through difficult illnesses. They go through losses. I think about the flooding that Marion brought up this morning about the, these people right now who are enduring. Their homes are being flooded and wiped away. I thought it was interesting because one of the um, announcers on the, 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 the news panel, this was her hometown, and they were interviewing her friends who were helping rescue people by boat, you know, putting his boat out and going in and rescuing people off their rooftops. And, and the eyewitness made a, uh, an account saying, it's, they're ruined. There's no, these houses are going to have to be bulldozed, and they're going to have to rebuild. There's not going to be anything left for them. So suffering is everywhere in the world, and that's a very good point. Why not me? Because it goes on everywhere, Okay. Very good. To witness to other people. Perfect. There you go. In in our suffering, we have that common element, which is an encouragement. Mm -hmm. But when we go through it, how can I use this for God's There you go. So would you say that Paul took took it to that next level then? Paul said, okay, I have been through these things also. And he's not saying that for the sake of saying, see me, I did it too. He's saying that, see me, I did it too by the grace of God through the help of my fa- my faith and my hope in the ultimate thing. He he turns it and he says, set your eyes basically upon that end goal. So he also tells us to set his eyes on the race. Yes, absolutely. He does that in another book. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay, so we see he is one who has endured suffering. We see he has a shepherd's heart for the Thessalonians. Is there any clue to us about the, why, why he has this deep love for these Thessalonians? What did we discover when we looked back at Acts? What was he to them? Their spiritual father, right? So let's put that on there. He is their spiritual father. Okay, and we see that, um, let's see, I don't know where I put, I don't have my reference on that one. Uh, That would be in Acts 17, so let's put that on here. Okay, so that's going to be your cross-reference for that one. All right, so he's their spiritual father. What else did we learn about him in your work? That's a good point, Carrie. Okay. So we see him, he is an encourager. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so he's got a great attitude. He he definitely keeps his heart and his mind focused on on the things which are the essentials about our life. And I think we can all learn from Paul's example in that, that, you know, when we're in our day-to-day issues and the struggles that we're in, whatever they are, to 
keep your perspective on that which is eternal rather than that which is temporal, number one. But in the temporal, say, but I am so thankful. I mean, when you consider it, what we can be thankful for simply that we are born in the United States of America. If that, for that reason alone, we, we should be thankful. Because you look around the world and consider the other options. Right? All right. So what else did we learn about Paul this week? He has authority. I love that one. Okay. And how did you come to that uh, conclusion? Yeah. And then back in 10, I think, is another one, right? Yeah. Yeah, but he does. And so when, you know, if, if someone is in your life that you do respect and that's over you as a father figure, then they do have that kind of authority to say to you, I command that you do this or I, and, and in that we're going to do word studies on that later. So we're going to find out more about what he means by that command and that, and that instruction that he's giving them. Okay. Um, I love that. He actually, he, he teaches them not only by word, but also by example, right? We saw that where? Okay. All right. So he taught them not only by word and and the instruction from the word of God itself but he did so by his own example and we see that in chapter 3 and we'll we'll develop that also more when we get there um okay so is there any other insights that you think are important okay so he's a man of prayer and from that we can say then he, his reliance is where? And he, and he demonstrates that and he teaches that to them also by the fact that he even says, I'm praying for you. And then later, I think it was in the opening of three, wasn't it? He says to them, you pray for me also, right? Brethren, please pray for us. Um, one of the things I thought was really cool in that opening of three, though, he says, pray for us for what? Okay, that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. So we know that he took the word of God to them, but now what do we learn in chapter 3? What is he still doing? He's still in ministry of, of, of leading people into faith. So he is still uh, ministering the word of God. 
you could say, in other words, he's still an evangelist, right? Continuing to do that. I'm just going to put three, one. And he asked them to pray for him in that, that it would be fruitful. Okay, so that gives us a little bit about our author. Did you find that in, an insightful development by doing it that way? That's called an analytical list. Rather than taking just the facts and getting them down, wrote them from that list that you've done very articulately from the word. Well, the, the principle of doing list making when you initially make your list is you take it directly from the text and put it onto your page in list form without changing up the wording, right? You use the exact words from the text. But when you move to analytical, now you draw conclusions. You can say, well, this tells me this about that person and that about that person. And you can approach it from saying, who is he as a man? What is his ministry work? What is his character like? Correct? All right. So that gives us a little bit about our author. That's context there. Yes? Well, yeah, I kind of in the idea that he, um, he's a man of prayer, that his reliance is on the Lord. But yes, he gives God credit. He really, yes. And what's really good is the fact that you come to see that when he does sound boast, boastful in the things that he's doing, he's actually doing it to make a point. Either to draw the audience in to understand he understands them because he's been there, and or he's doing it to say, but this is what God did in that. I was in this circumstance, but this is how God helped. Yes. The other way. I just moved it because I thought, now these people are not going to be happy. I'm surprised. Okay, and you do know that you will get the chart, right? So if you miss a sentence or a word or something, I'm, these charts will go out to you at, um, at the end. Another thing is he's a prophet because in chapter 2 he goes on, don't worry, you haven't missed the day of the Lord, these things must <clears throat> Right, okay. That's a good point that in, in a way he actually gives a, it's not a full prophetic word because he's just being, he's telling them what he already knows and what has already been prophetically given, but he's clarifying it for us. He's teaching them. So you could put it, he's a teacher. He teaches them, right? All right. Okay, so let's move on then, then to the next thing. Let's t- now let's just broaden our, our perspective here a little bit and do our key words. Now, why are marking key words so important? Okay, by looking, by looking for words that are repeated and marking them and then beginning to make your lists on them as you're to do, you begin to rise to the surface in subjects of, of interest for you to study so that you can build your understanding on the subject and then come back and look at it in perspective to what Paul is teaching us in this particular record, correct? So what kind of keywords did you mark in this particular Book. Now remember, what we're looking for are more the big picture, not so much the individual chapters. Although I know in this book, because the letter is so small, it's going to be hard to not totally just pick on some keywords that are in specific books. But you do want to try to not get down into the details of the chapter um, keywords, but you want to see the bigger flow. What is the major thing that you're seeing being talked about in this particular book? 
Was there one word and its synonyms that seemed to be the most profound for us? Suffering and afflictions. The coming of the Lord. Okay, so let's start, let's start making a list. The coming of the Lord. Faith. Yes, yes, it did seem like that. And as we go, when we get into doing our chapter uh, observations starting next week, we're going to actually be able to pull out even deeper clarity on how once we identify what the major theme is that's going on here by looking at these key words, then we're going to say, okay, because this is the process. What you do is you, you go through and you begin to mark these, and we're just starting to get a list here, and we've got lots more to go yet. But once you do that, then what you're going to do is you're going to step back and having marked these on your observation worksheet, there should be at least one that actually becomes dominant, that that either every word relates back to that, wor- that major subject or that major subject is spoken of or, or developed through these other points, okay? And it, it's a bit, tr- a bit tricky sometimes in the beginning when you're first learning the process to kind of get to there. But if, if you will just do the real basics, which is mark the keywords and synonyms, Okay, anything that's basically saying the same thing, mark them in the same way. If you get too many, mar- if you take every word and mark them distinctively, you're going to miss it. But if you mark your synonyms in the same way, you're going to find out that there is one word or one subject that seems to come up the most and that then each of the chapters will develop that subject. Okay? Okay, gl- glory is another word that comes in here. And you know that, yes, it is. And it's going to be fun to see what that means, what that specific word is talking about, the glory. Okay, people would be man of lawlessness. We have already identified there's an author and a recipient, so we've got those two down. The man of lawlessness, and is there any other? The unruly people. (laughs) The unruly or undisciplined. Okay. The idea of judgment. And does it say the word judgment, though? I don't think it does. Oh, okay. All right. And it's mentioned just that one time there, and that phraseology. Is there a synonym to that anywhere? Okay. Retribute to... Okay. Retribution and repay. Okay. So those are going to be all terms that... Can you see how developing the synonyms to it makes that a bigger subject than if it was just the one word? Okay. We have another... The unbelievers, the man of us, the unruly, the undisciplined, and then unbelievers. 
Boy, I tell you what, this this one is really loaded. It's amazing. It's three little tiny chapters. There is so there are so many subjects and so many you know focuses in this thing. It's going to be interesting. Okay. Worthy. Okay. What is it related to? Okay. And what makes okay and be. Okay, that's really good. Is there an, a, you may not be able to jump there yet, but, but I, I've already considered, I did exactly what you did, James. I picked up on that. But as I kept reading through, I figured out there's a word that kind of links them all together. What makes them worthy is enduring the suffering, right? And how does that relate to the subject of salvation and being believer? They were called for what specifically? To be, there were two points, called for Yes, and and how are they doing it? What does it say about the spirit? There was something about the spirit in there. There you go. Sanctification of the spirit and and faith in the truth. So we're going to develop that more later, but that those are really two good things and what happens is by looking at some of these multitudes of things, you can pull them all together under one title of sanctification. This is your sanctification. It's not your salvation. You come to salvation by faith, which is through grace, right? It's grace alone that saves you. But once you're, but being in this, then you must be willing to do all these other things. And he gives all these things. I'm commanding you to do this, and I'm commanding you to do that. The commandments to do these certain things, is that how you get saved? No. no. So it, it's a different title, isn't it? It's a different subject. It's the subject of sanctification. Okay. Uh, there's a, a trick on this. Since we're doing the overview, I mean, every chapter has its own keywords. Yep. Keywords that That's what we're looking for. Yes, it is. And so, unfortunately, in this book, you almost have to kind of mark them first, and then you start to find it. Now, we're not there yet, because there's a major subject that you haven't hit on yet that really is throughout this whole book, and it's over and over. What is it? There you go. Thank you. So it has to do with the, the, the basically, it's the truth. It's the gospel. It's what Paul instructed them in, what Paul taught them. It's all, it go, I mean, it goes on. It's our testimony to you. It's the word of the Lord. It's the things I was telling you. It's the traditions that I taught, correct? So what he does is he brings this up. This actually right here becomes the most dominant key repeated word in the book on the whole. Now, from that, what we have to figure out then is what is the author's purpose for writing this book, right? If he keeps saying, now, remember I told you this, and these were the traditions, now hold to this and do that. It's tough, right? So what Kay gave us really one good, I thought, exercise this week to do that really was helpful. And she said, I want you to look at the, um, the exhortations 
the problems and the and the in, and the instructions. Correct. So what I want to do with you is just develop the instructions because I think by by focusing on at least on one point and saying what did she t- did, did Paul then tell them to do by looking at that then we can hopefully pull out of that concerning these things that they have been taught what was their problem what ha- what was their problem what was the major issue that happened in here right so they had been deceived right about the things and and what did Paul keep telling them don't be deceived and remember what I've already told you, right? So he keeps taking them back saying, look, I already told you these things. You were already taught these things. Do what I command. I'm confident in you who are doing what I, com- what I did command you to do. But now basically saying, but now I'm going to tell you and I command you to do it again. So he, he keeps going back to what they were taught. Wow. Is th- how important would you say the subject of you and I remembering what we've been taught in our faith and falling back to that over and over, how important is that for you and I as, as believers? If you don't have your knowledge of the word of God and if you don't keep falling back to that, what do you end up falling into? Deception. And you end up relying on, rather than on the truth, what do you end up relying on? Your own feelings, your experiences, right? Your emotions begin to dictate you rather than those bedrock, solid truth principles of doctrine that says, but what does God say? What has the Lord told you to do? What has God, has, and in Paul's life, he says, this is what I demonstrated to you. This is how I lived among you. And I didn't do it because I had to. I actually had every right to not but I did these things in order that you would what? Follow my example. And in another book, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Exactly. So I think that we've come to a really good place at this point in our context setting that even though there's tons of, and we didn't even hit on all of them. There's, I've got a really long list here. There are a lot of key words, that, things that come up, subjects that come up throughout this whole book as you move through. But if you will mark the truth and the gospel and what Paul has taught them or told them, and every time he says, remember what I told you before, if you will mark all of those in the same manner, you are going to find out that that is your book key theme. Key, key subject, I should say. And now what you have to do is go to the next step and say, okay, if this is the subject, then what is he telling them to do in relationship to that? So now we're going to look at our list of instructions, okay? So let's do that. And then we can develop our themes. So our instructions are what? In chapter 1, what does he tell them to do? Okay, so persevere in afflictions. Okay. Um, I love in, in chapter 1, and we've already talked about this just a little bit a minute ago, but in, in chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, he talks about the fact that if they will do this enduring and suffering, right, that who's going to be glorified? 
Jesus will be. And he's glorified by them doing two specific things. Do you see it? There should be a simple list in one of those verses. Goodness and the work of faith. Goodness and the work of faith are the two things that if you continue to persevere in the midst of your trials and sufferings, if you continue in goodness and you continue in the, in the work of faith with power, then God is going to be glorified. And he will be glorified at his coming in you, right? All right. So we see, he says, therefore, it, persevere in your afflictions. That's his instruction to them. Because, it's, because this is the, there are those phrases, therefore, is for this reason. Do you, have you, did you mark all those yet? If you haven't, when next week's homework, you'll begin to do that in each of your chapters. But anytime you see a so that, or for this reason, or therefore, um, we told you, basically, we told you to do this because kind of statements, you're going to mark that little phrase in a distinctive way so that, because what's going to follow it then is a conclusion statement as to the motivation behind why he's telling you persevere. And that's going to be another quality of insight that's going to be helpful to you. Okay. He comes to that, though, kind of roundabout because he's kind of exhorting them for their uh, perseverance as opposed to persevering. He's telling them to persevere. But you know what's really cool? Yes, he does. You're right. He is clever. He comes about it through exhortation rather than a commandment in that point. And as a matter of fact, I think it's really interesting because he actually says on there, we speak proudly of you, right? In one of, which verse is that, where he says that? Uh, Four, Four. okay. So read that verse four for me, somebody. uh, James, go ahead and read that. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst, in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. Okay, so translate that into mommy talk <laughs> or daddy talk. Keep it up. <laughs> it is an instruction, is it not? Although it's done through an exhortation statement, which is, uh, is a, there's a, a lesson for us to learn in that. But I do think most of us do it quite naturally, actually. Um, when I say to you, Way to go, guys. You did your homework so well. I like the way you made that list. Wasn't that helpful to you when you did that list and we were able to then draw these conclusions? Are you seeing how doing these, this method is really helpful to you? That when, when you actually start thinking back on the things that you've learned, even in the book of Acts and bow the way back to Ezekiel, can you see how all those very methodic list makings and all those researches that you did, how now you're retaining it? And, and what, is, what am I saying when I say, yay, what a great job you did? What, what does that do for you today? It encourages you to do what? Keep on doing it. <laughs> and that is exactly what he says. He says, I speak proudly of you guys. I speak proudly of you guys. I cannot tell you, if my mom wanted to exhort me to get me to clean the house and do a better job of making my bed and washing the dishes or whatever, she would just say, Katie, I'm just so proud of you. And my mother did that a lot. She knew the way to a a heart and to get a person on board with doing it. So although he doesn't directly say persevere, he's actually saying, I am so proud of you for persevering. So what he's indirectly saying, 
Keep it up. <laughs> okay, so instructions. Persevere in your afflictions, okay? Because this is, this is uh, going to glorify the Lord in the end. Yes? For me, I saw a second instruction in chapter 1 where he's talking about remembering that it's God who brings that. Okay, very good. I'm so glad you did that. Remember, and although he doesn't say, he actually goes on to say, remember what his point was, but in essence, he's saying, remember what I told you before, right? Remember, and that's in one, what verse? Six to ten. Six to ten, what I've told you. What I told you before. Because that's what's going to exhort them, right? If they remember what the end is going to happen. In the end, he's saying to them that if you persevere and God is going to be glorified in you in that, that's going to exhort you to continue to persevere. But, but more importantly, you need to remember what's going to happen at the end of all this. Because setting your eyes at the end of things, which is all the way down here at the end of the age, what has he told them is going to happen at the end of the age? God's kingdom is coming, right? And they're being considered worthy of that kingdom, correct? All right. So we have the next piece on our timeline then is that the ultimate end of all this that Paul's Everything he's doing, everything he's teaching them in this book so far is pointing to this. This time when God's kingdom is going to come and that's what they're, they're setting their eyes upon. They're keeping their goals set for that day when he comes and he makes things right. And judgment, he, remember we saw judgment and retribution and people are going to be repaid. And although you're enduring under affliction, one day it's going to be made right. Right? And so he keeps their eyes there. Chapter 2, let's move to the next one. What do we see there? Instructions. Mm -hmm. So do not be deceived. I always get this one right. Do you see? E-I. Okay. Do not be deceived, right? Do not be shaken, do not be deserved, and do not be deceived. About what? The coming of the Lord in our gathering together to him. Now, do you see how that's like one statement? It, the and kind of links those two together. And then there's a second thing. Don't be deceived about what else? What other day? The day of the Lord. Now, did you notice then that that becomes two distinctive time references? Although somehow there's a little bit of a link in there. There are th- two things. One um, is the coming of the Lord. In our gathering to him. And then number two, the day of the Lord. And we're going to, at some point, we're going to split hairs on this a little bit and help you to try to see two things. Now, for those of you who've not done the Daniel and Revelation and Ezekiel and so forth courses, it's going to be a little tougher for you to to actually see the split, but we will try to do what we can to help you out in that. I'm going to take you through some verses and, and get you there, hopefully. Okay? So don't be shaken. Don't be deceived again. Don't be deceived about what? So this is about what was taught, right? About... Uh,
about what you were taught and about what you were instructed about before. Don't be deceived about this because why? Had he already told them about it before? Did Kay, and Kay took us into First Thessalonians to show us that, didn't, didn't she? So where we saw the fact that they had actually had this instruction before. Okay, so to remember then in verse, this is going to be verses 2, 5, and 6. Somebody read that. Okay, so remember what I was telling you about before. When I was with you before, I instructed you about these things. So don't be deceived. So whatever this letter or word or vision or, or uh, message was from so, wherever it came from, do not be deceived. Remember, I told you about this before, right? Okay, what is, um, let's go move, move into chapter 3 now. Okay, we're going to develop that more when we go back to, to that chapter, but let's just move on. Go into three. What is the next instruction? I'm sorry, say it again. Well, okay, there's a good one. What does it say there? Okay, so stand firm and um, hold fast, right? And hold to the traditions. You just kind of, I'm going to put a little star right there for the moment, and that's in 2.15. All right. Because it is another instruction. I want you to hold fast. I want you to stand firm. In what? In the traditions that you were taught. Now, that's all these things. The truth, the gospel, what Paul has taught them before. Correct? So far, would you say that you are beginning to see maybe an emphasis in this book about what he is trying to do? Although there's a lot of subjects that are being covered, what is he trying to draw them back to? What they have been taught. What they have been taught. And would you say 2.15 kind of goes right to the heart of it? I want you to hold fast right? And stand firm in the traditions which I have already taught you. Because why? There you go. Otherwise you're going to be just like you are shaken and disturbed, which is going to be something we're going to, we're going to focus on a little bit more later. But this idea of being shaken and disturbed, I can remember, um, years back when I was first in faith and I had a young Bible study group and we were, we were, uh, there were some issues going on in the news at that time, again, about global warm, warming and ozones and how the earth was going to be destroyed in so many years and all these things, you know. And I remember my group getting all upset and all I, and all I could think was, okay, wait a minute, guys. Hold on, hold on. What has God told us about the end? Do we have to worry that the earth is going to be destroyed by global warming? No, because what has Jesus said he's going to do with this earth? Jesus is going to return, and when he returns, he's going to do what? He's going to reign for how long? A thousand years. Where? Upon this. Yeah, exactly. Eventually, he's going to get to destroy it, but we are not going to. And it will definitely be global warming. It'll be total meltdown. That's exactly right. But think about it. But think. 
Yes, but think about it, especially for, and, and I wouldn't even say just young believers. I would say even uh, people, anybody that you talk to today about this, if they don't believe this, these things which are the traditions that Paul taught them, if you do not believe this, would these news things that are coming out on the news and all the turmoil we've got going on in our world today, um, the possibility of World War III really developing before our very eyes, how fearful, how disturbed, how shaken could you be? Yeah, <laughs> extremely. You could see the, earth, the world is coming to an end. Now, think back to what's going on with these believers who are shaken and disturbed what were they, some of them doing in chapter 3? Because they were so shaken and so disturbed. They were being undisciplined. Whoa, very interesting. The result of not knowing the end, not holding to what you know God has said, can result in what in your life? Not living it the way that you're supposed to be living it in a disciplined manner. And what he says to them, he says, two things I want you to do. I want you to persevere in, um, uh, he says about, it, uh, wait, wait a second, let me find my list here. Because in goodness and the work of faith with power, because that's going to be, bring God glory at this time when he comes and he institutes this kingdom to come. And if along the way you're so disturbed and shaken that you start being lazy and undisciplined in your life, are you going to bring him glory at the end of the age? Is the work that you've done by, by basically, what were chapter 3, what were these undisciplined men doing? And, and so whose bread were they eating? Somebody else's bread. Uh, tell me, can you see any kind of analogy of this being going on in our nation today? Yes. How many people today are not working? And it's not because they can't work, but it's because why? They don't want to work. They don't want to work. And they don't have to because it's, we've enabled them to not, right? So, I mean, that's just an, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's another perversion of it. But the end of it is they don't realize that, that their work and they're doing good, living in the disciplined manner is what brings God glory. But if they aren't working for God's glory, that one day when they face him, he will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. If they're not, if they're not living their life in that manner, rather they're hearing global warming, things are going to be destroyed, the, you know, the imbalance of nature, there's not going to be any water, there's, you know, all these horror stories that are being fed to us right now through all the junk you see on the web and on the news and so forth. You can get sucked into it. And Paul, this is such a practical book. Paul is reining them in, isn't he? He's saying, keep your eyes on what I've taught you right? Remember that you're to be disciplined. So what is the commandment? What is the instruction in chapter 3? Okay, keep aloof from those who are, for that's one instruction is, is you yourself don't live undisciplined, but also keep away from those. Now in that, that's an interesting way of saying what about this particular church? What are they in need of at this point? Yes, this church needs some church discipline applied because it got people in it who are believers. 
They are brothers. It's very clear. makes it clear on that. And he says, don't treat them as unbelievers, right? But treat them as who they are, your brothers. But what is the goal? (coughs) Yes, he wants to bring them back into right relationship uh, in their community and before God. Right? So he wants them to be corrected. So he's saying, uh, basically, follow our example. Right? This is where Paul goes into saying what he did. Even though he actually had the right to be fed by them because he was actually working for them through preaching the word of God and, and teaching. But even still, what did he do while he was with them? He worked. He worked, he worked with his own hands. So that what? That he would be, he would not, I love that one the best of all of it. For one thing, so that he wouldn't be a burden on them. Because if your brother is not working, have any of you got family members or even neighbors that you just seem to get sucked into all the time, that they're always standing there with their hand out? They want you to help them pay their bills, help help them buy food, help them, you know, take care of school, this or that, whatever it is. And it's because what do they want to do? Not work, right? And here he's saying, look, while we were among you, even though we had the right, because we were working spiritually for you, we had the right for you to feed us and take care of us, but we did not rely on that. Instead, we worked so we would not be a burden to you and so that we would be what to you? An example that you would follow, that you are to work. And he actually goes one step further. He says, and when I was with you, we used to teach you about those who don't work. What did he say about them? They also should not eat. How hard is it for you and I to think about families in, the, in our neighborhood and in our own families, our own family members? I've got one. Don't work, then you don't what? And if they have to go hungry for a day or two, then what generally happens? They start getting motivated to go out and figure out how they're going to get money, don't they? And hopefully it's through an, an honest measure. You're right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Follow our example. Um, he, what else does he tell them? Follow our example. Also, uh, keep away from... I don't have room here to put it all on here. Keep away from the brothers who lead an unruly life. Follow our example. What else? Admonish those who are living unruly. So in other words, church discipline needs to be put into effect. You and I, if we have church friends who are truly Christians, but they are pulling this kind of stuff and acting in this manner, and maybe not just about not working, but other things, we need to administer church discipline for their good, for our good, right? But more importantly, for God's glory and that good, right? That's right. It would be, yes. It would be really easy to just say, forget it, I'm, you know, I've, I give up, I'm, you know, tired of this, I'm not going to help anybody ever again. I've heard that before somewhere. I think it's an echo in my ear, <laughs> you know, but you do, you do get tired of, of being used, basically, but he's saying, no, don't grow weary of doing good, but you do, I do think that this principle of not being an enabler to those who can help themselves and should help themselves is, is very, very important. It, it, I think it's interesting, though, how the emotional uh, 
game that's played basically through very liberal thinking is we have to keep helping people, have to keep giving them, have to keep... And in, a, and in essence, what we're doing is making them a slave to people who, who are helping them instead of helping them help themselves. And so then they try to turn it and play mind games with you and make you feel like you're so evil because you want them to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and do what they can for themselves. This does not mean those who are truly in need should not be helped. Right? We definitely, and do we not want to? Yes, we want to help those who really need the help. But there's a lot of people who could help themselves. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to just get this last one on here. Do not grow weary of doing good. All right, so now what we've come to see then, all of this te- seems to fall back to this primary subject then of what Paul has already taught them, Right? So now we're ready to title our chapters. Let's go through and get our our major themes then. When he's referring back to the things that they have been taught before, what is he telling them in chapter 1 then they are to do concerning the things that are going on? What do you see in chapter 1 is the major subject? It's perseverance in in that time of struggle. So how did you title that? Okay, in in however you want to say it, you know, somewhere along these lines, persevering in suffering and afflictions, um, uh, and 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 I think this the the conclusion state that because why this this kind of suffering, this kind of endurance, is a plain indication of your worthiness for the kingdom of God. And so, what does that do for them? It sets their eyes upon the end goal again, right? Because persevering in suffering is plain indication of worthiness. And that's just my wording for kingdom. But can you see how this persevering and suffering points them to that kingdom of God? Again, it takes them back to knowing this is what I told you was coming one day. This is what I taught you about the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to him. And if you continue in in your perseverance and suffering, this is going to bring God glory at that day when you are, are going to see him, right? Okay, so it brings God glory, and it's a plain indication of their worthiness. Okay, excellent. All right, chapter 2. How do you see what's being taught there? They're, they're being told, stand firm and hold to those traditions. Do not be deceived, so let no one deceive you. Um, or you could, 
and that is true, but that, and that is in that one particular one chapter, absolutely, concerning the, the day of the Lord specifically in that chapter. You could, absolutely. And then that would help you remember what's in that particular chapter. Um, because it, it, let no one deceive you, but in, the contrast to that in, in verse 15 is remember what you've been taught, right? All right, chapter 3. Follow our example. That's a good one. And what is his example? To, to clarify it. Live disciplined lives. And by the way, admonish those who don't. <laughs> P.S. By the way, right? Don't, don't negate your responsibility that there has to be discipline in the church. Those are my verses. I picked verse 5 in chapter 1, verse 3 in chapter 2, and verse 7 in chapter 3 as my key verses for each of those three chapters. Now, picking a verse then for the overall theme is going to help us then to, de- to determine our book title, our book theme. And so we see what you have to do is you have to go back to what is repeated the most and what do we see is repeated the most is what has been taught, right? So what's the instruction to them about the things that they've been taught? Hold fast to what you were taught. So book theme. Could be hold fast to traditions taught or to what you have been taught wow very good i the word traditions to me is a tougher one to throw in there for, because it doesn't sound quite as gospely <laughs> It sounds more like, you know, well, what is that? So, but I think saying, hold fast to what you have been taught is really, is really clear. And what verse do we see that very clear uh, exhortation? 2.15. So our book uh, verse then is going to be 2.15 for the theme of the book. Wow. Historical setting the per- and the purpose. I don't have ri- room to write up here then. What is his purpose for writing? I'll put it over here. What is his purpose? Yes. Purpose is to instruct and to what? Exhort. So he's inst- again, he's, ex- he's instructing and he's in- exhorting. So to correct error regarding the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord and to correct their issues about undisciplined lives, to correct their understanding about why the suffering and to make sure that they continue in that, all those things. So it's to instruct. And then the last one is to exhort the church to do all those things that we just said. Historical setting of this book is what? The persecutions, the sufferings, the afflictions, and there's another one secondary to that. The false teachings that's coming out of this. People who are interpreting their circumstance emotionally, forgetting what they've been taught, and they're saying, oh, the day of the Lord has already come. So somehow they came to that conclusion. And because of that, then how would that make a believer feel if you thought the day of the Lord had already come? 
You missed it. You missed the whole thing. And so he goes in there, and we looked a little bit at this, but what did he say is going to happen before the day of the Lord comes? There is going to be the then there, and the man of lawlessness. And then comes, right, God's kingdom. So there's this man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness is going to be revealed in chapter 2, verse 3. In chapter 2, verse 4, there's a significant event. What's going to happen that's going to identify that man of lawlessness to us? He's going to take his seat in the temple of God, right? Do you remember that? Was that in First Thessalonians we did that one? We went to cross-reference in First Thessalonians. Um, why is that an important point to keep in mind when we're looking at the coming of the end of the age? Okay, first of all, there's no temple there right now. That helps us distinguish, are we at the time of the end of the, of the age yet? No, because we're waiting for a temple because he's going to take his seat in the temple of God, correct? That's a very definitive marker, is it not? Do you remember in Matthew 24, 15, we went back to that one a lot when we did our Revelation course. What did, what did he say was going to happen in that temple at that time and then they were going to flee? Well, and it, but it calls it something. It's called what? An abomination of desolation, right? And he actually gives a reference of it. He connects it back to who? Which, which patriarch? Back to Daniel. He said it's the abomination spoken of by Daniel. And so it takes you right back to Daniel chapter 9. So what happens is, is by, by combining the information, we're going to do this more clearly when we get there, but by combining what we see in 1 Thessalonians and what we see in 2 Thessalonians about this day of the Lord, that he's going to make a correction on when we get into chapter 2, we're going to be able to see that there are certain markers that we're going to list. We're not there yet, but we're going to make a nice list about this man of lawlessness that's going to give us some very clear markers of identification so that in the meantime, while we're here, we're remembering, we're waiting for that day, and we are to continue working and to live disciplined lives. Until that time, right? So there's going to be this man of lawlessness, and then there's going to be this ki- the kingdom of God that's going to come. How long does the church go on? What does Romans tell us? We're going to close with one verse. Romans 11. I want to read verses 25 to 32, and then we'll be done. What does it say there? Because I think that's really a great verse to give you an, in, a, a very clear understanding about what's going on right now concerning the church. Do you guys remember what Romans 11 is about? It's about the grafting in of Gentiles into the covenant promise of that coming Holy Spirit, correct? So what is it? Uh, Craig, can you read that loudly for us, thir- uh, 25 to 32? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, that's a key marker word. Until when? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So we're waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. And then what is God going to do? And so all of Israel will be saved. Just as, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies of the 
Amen. Because what he's saying there is God is impartial. And both groups are being judged under the same agenda. And that is, it is by faith that you enter in. And that wholeness of chapter 11 in Romans says they were cut off because of unbelief, right? And so while he's grafting us into this promise, and the promise was the coming spirit through this new covenant, which he gave initially to who? What nation? Israel to the Jews. He said to them, I will make a new covenant with you one day, not like the old covenant, but, but it's, I'm going to take your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to place my spirit in you. And he says, so when the birthing of the church occurs, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes into this thing called the new covenant, then this thing called the church is going to continue on. When the last of those Gentiles comes in, the church is finished. Jew and Gentile in one body through this new covenant called the church, that era, that uh, dispensation is the word, is finished. And then he will begin to work this issue out right here. The man of lawlessness will come. This is the time Daniel refers to as Daniel's 70th week. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, if you want to look at it, this is the time frame here that we're looking forward to where the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. He will take his seat in the temple of God. He will claim himself to be God. And in Matthew 24, he says, in that day when you see this happen, Israel is to flee to the wilderness. There's going to be all kinds of things that are going to happen. That was our revelation study. But we're not going to obviously go into all those details, but for those who did it, you can see it. Can you see it in this book already? Isn't it awesome? I love the tapestry of God's Word. It's just so cool. Thank you, guys. Yes, Carol. Carol. 